Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles, California. I have Sam Talent on the program today. He has a novel out called Running the Light. It is on Too Big to Fail Press, and maybe you've heard of it. There's some buzz out there about this book, especially in the comedy community. Running the Light is about a ruined human, human being, a comedian named Billy Ray Schaefer. He's a lifer. He's a road dog. He's got a checkered past. And the, the story takes place over seven days, and it wrecked me. This is a very good novel, and it hit me harder than I thought it was going to hit me. I think whenever I pick up a book, I'm always hoping that it's going to you know, do something major to me, but I try not to get my hopes up. And with this one, I was a little bit tempered. Maybe there was a part of me... I don't know. I just I was just tempered. And then I read it, and I couldn't put it down. And it knocked me over the head. It's a terrific novel. Doug Stanhope, the comedian, calls Running the Light, quote, one of the best books I've read ever. The best fictional representation of comedy in any medium. Running the Light has sold uh, 15,000 copies, or close to it, right out of Sam Talent's garage. This is his press. He published the book. It's very rare for me to talk to somebody who uh, is self-published. It's an arbitrary designation, but I, you know, I have to have markers when I'm trying to book the show. And typically I'll talk to somebody who self-publishes only if their book has found uh, a readership of unusual size like this one, or is generating excitement and interest in a way that uh, feels strange. And this is certainly the case for this book. And I can see why. And I'm excited to introduce Sam to you. If you've never uh, heard of him before, or if this book is new to you, I think you're going to like our conversation. He's a working comedian and has been for a while. And, uh, you know, this is his first novel. And it really gives language and breathes to life what the reality is for road comedians. And for somebody like me who's a big fan of comedy and who has a lot of reverence for comedians, it was just wonderful to read. 
because it illuminates parts of comedy that the average fan never gets to see. And I imagine, and I say this to Sam in the conversation, but I imagine one of the reasons why comedians have been so enthusiastic about this book is that it gives language and illuminates parts of their experience that they might never have had words for before or have seen in print. So, Running the Light by Sam Talent, my conversation with him coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by McSweeney's, publisher of the novel You People by Nikita Lowani. You People was published in the UK in early 2020 to extraordinary acclaim. Nikita Lowani is a Booker Prize nominee, and You People is now available in the United States exclusively from McSweeney's Publishing. You People is set in the opening years of the 21st century against the backdrop of the Sri Lankan Civil War and the outpouring of refugees to Britain that it created. You People tells the story of Pizzeria Vesuvio in West London, an Italian spot on a street where cooks from Sri Lanka rub shoulders with waitstaff from all over the place. Spain, Georgia, Wales, Poland, you name it. But upstairs, on the battered leather sofas, lives are being altered drastically and often illegally, as money, legal aid, safe passage, and hope are dealt out under the table to those deemed worthy. You People asks the big questions at a time of bewildering flux on planet Earth. What price do we put on life, on freedom, and the right to love in an age defined by seismic political change. Book List calls you people, quote, compact yet powerful. This timely and adept novel deserves wide readership. Cosmopolitan calls it, quote, timely and hopeful. And the Mail on Sunday says, quote, it pulses with energy. You People, the new novel by Nikita Lalwani, available now from McSweeney's. So if you're new to the Other People podcast, this is a weekly program featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading authors. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. The show has its own official app. It's free. You can track that down, the Other People with Brad Listy app. You can find the show online at otherppl.com. You can follow it on Twitter at otherppl. And you can also find it on Instagram. So having said that, let's get to today's guest and the conversation at hand. Very pleased to have had the chance to talk with Sam Talon at this moment in his life as this novel makes its way out into the world and is winning him all kinds of enthusiastic fans. Once again, the book is called Running the Light, available now from Too Big to Fail press. Here he is, folks. This is Sam Talent. No one wants to touch this thing as far as like the, you know, capital L literature, like the literati could not give less of a shit about this book, which is a huge bummer because I'm very proud of it. And even my own Denver Post, which, you know, has been reviewing my comedy and been a big champion of me. They still wouldn't do a review. They didn't audit like an artist, artist uh, spotlight type thing. 
where the guy was sure enough to give me enough lines that I could pull out to use like on the back of the book, but they still wouldn't give me a review. So did you try to sell this to conventional presses? Yeah, man. Like I was, my literary agent who did it initially was this guy, Bird Leoval at UTA, who's like a big power player in memoirs. And I sent it to him unsolicited and he was like, this book rules. Uh, and then he like tried to sell it and he said that we weren't getting offered enough money. So, uh, he was like, I don't know what to do, man. Like, who's this book for? What's the audience? And I was like, I don't know, maybe fans of comedy, you know, that thing that everyone loves. But okay, okay wait, let me interrupt you because you said yeah. that you're not getting offered enough money. So you were getting some offer. I mean, I think we got like five grand. We got like two offers of five grand. And he was like, well, it, it, I don't think it entered, it, it didn't interest him because he's used to like huge memoir money. And I don't think he really wanted to like worry about it, which is fine. And then he was like, dude, just sell this book yourself and you'll probably make a lot more money. And I did. And like, luckily it worked out, but I still can't get, you know, the MFA crowd to give me a wink and a nod. How, how much, how many, how many copies have you sold? I've sold 14,000, um, Amazon and out of my garage combined. And then the audiobook. I don't know how many I've sold yet because I sold those rights, but, uh, I mean, it's doing really well, man. I mean, it's still in the top 10 of like crime fiction on Audible and in the top, last I checked, 2,500 in just straight up fiction. Wait, crime fiction? Yeah, I know. I didn't list it there. They put it in crime fiction? Yeah, they did. Tantor Media Group, those geniuses. <laughs> uh, I should say to our listeners that this is not a work of crime fiction. I would never, no. I would not characterize no. it that way. It's I wouldn't a, either. <laughs> it's literary fiction. Thank you, man. I know. That's, that's what I said. Uh, but, you know, you can, like, skew all the metrics if you put it in, like, self-help or crime fiction or whatever. So Tantor did whatever they had to to generate some buzz. I don't know, man. I signed away the rights, and then I'm not used to not having full control over everything I do. And the decisions they made to market this book, which were, like, almost nil, every one of them infuriated me. And I was just, like, pissed the whole time. Did you did you do the reading of the audiobook? No, I had a bunch of comedians read individual chapters. So like Mark Marin did a chapter and Burt Kreischer and uh Doug Stanhope, Chris Gethard, like a bunch of my friends that just called in a favor finally and all of them read a, a chapter, um, which was kind of a marketing move on my part. Um I think the I don't want to say the book suffered for it, but it was a good move to have like fifteen different comedians talk about the book on their individual podcast to each of their unique demographics. And that moved a lot of units that way. I was going to say, well, I mean, that's like, that's like nice. I think that's a nice option for you. You're smart. I think smart and uh, shrewd to take advantage of it. But I, I guess I'm thinking of the way in which the uh, comedy community has really established itself in this medium, like in the podcasting medium. I feel like, it was sort of a, at the forefront for natural reasons, like comedians talking to microphones anyway. You know, it's a, yeah. it's, it's an easy step to take. But uh, the word community is like a, like worth repeating because, th like, that's what these things, like, should be for at their best. You know, a way to get the word out about good work and a way for artists of a similar tribe to help one another out, even if that artist happens to be working in a different medium. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I started comedy, it was all about the sense of community. And now it's a lot more like uh, 
I don't know. There's always disparate parts, you know, because comedy is so boutique now. So you can find the exact kind of comedy that you like. And whereas in the past, you just saw what Comedy Central put out for half hours or what HBO put out or what was on Conan. And now you can find these niche, like, comedians that you like and they can be your favorite comic. And me being a professional comedian for 15 years, I might never have heard of that person. So it was cool for, like, comedy as a whole to get behind this book and kind of hold it up as, like, I mean, Stanhope and Marin both said it was the definitive work of fiction in any medium on comedy. And when your heroes are saying that kind of shit, like, it's really surreal, dude. It was really tough to, like, I mean, Stanhope called me and he was like, hey, come out and do my podcast. And I was like, cool, what's the what's the Zoom? And he's like, no, come to my house. I want you to, like, come stay with me. And that was just a lot of dreams coming true on this thing. I can, I can imagine. I mean, so Stanhope, and he lives out in, like, Arizona, right? And, uh yeah, he lives in Bisbee on the border. That's right. That's he's got like a. Com- I feel like he's got a compound. Is that a accurate yeah, characterization? <laughs> for sure, man. Uh, I mean, it's as close to Waco as I've ever been. They're like they're like party line Democrats who are also carnies. It's very strange down there. Like everyone's on mushrooms, but they're like, uh, you know, they're very friendly. And he couldn't have been more generous. Like all he does is eat caviar and like make drinks for people. He's so weird. <laughs> he's such an iconoclast in every way. Well, that's great, though. I like that there's somebody out there living their life like that. And, uh, you know, we need I think we need people like that in the culture, more of them. Yeah, he's totally uh, I mean, he's kind of like he forgets that he followed all the rules early in his career. Like he hosted the man show and did the Aspen Comedy Festival. And he'll try and give me advice. He's like, oh, you don't need the industry, kid. And it's like, all right, dude. But like you had the industry for 15 years before you like seceded and moved down to the desert to, you know, go scorpion hunting. So it's just the perspective is lost eventually. But everything good that's come from this book has come from him saying it's good. Um, so, yeah, I'm just indebted to him. All right. So let's talk about the the writing of the book. Uh, how long did it take you, first of all? Um, it took me less than a year. I lived in Vegas for the first two years of my wife's medical school. She's a, she was in like, we moved from Denver where we could, I had just had my friends around me all the time and I could just like go to their houses and smoke weed and like play FIFA all day. So I wasn't really like driven to do anything. So when we moved to Vegas, I was really lonely and uh, I was like widowed by her being at med school all day. So I just was alone and I always wrote short stories and big reader of fiction. I love novels. Um, and I like wrote on like, I don't know. I got through like 120,000 words of two other things. And then this guy, Billy Ray Schaefer, he was, I was writing a novel about his son. I was, it was about supposed to be the son of a comedian. And then I got to that first chapter in my book, just ended up being a part of that. And then the book just flew out of me. And I wrote every day that I was home. I'd be on the road like three days a week. So I think I wrote it over the course of like 10 to 12 months, four days a week, like eight hours a day. Damn. But this thing had been brewing in you for a while. I guess, man. I didn't know it was in there. But as soon as I figured out who this guy was, just like all the decisions he made seemed to be really organic. And, you know, when you read a book and you can like feel the wires, you can see like the puppet strings and all the characters are like doing all this crazy shit just to serve the plot like that you can see the you can see the puppetry in my first two things I was working on and I felt like in this book like you know you couldn't see any of the special effects like everything he did like made sense for who he was yeah it felt real you know and lived and 
I, I feel too like something that I notice in works of fiction that I admire and works of fiction that work uh, is that there's a like there's a vessel. That's what I always call it. Like it's it's like a contained unit of time. And this book is working on a clock, and you never feel at any moment in it that you're not moving towards something. Uh, and I don't know, like, I don't want to give away too much, but I could feel him moving towards his family. Like that's the, the driver of the narrative for me. And it was keeping me turning pages because you know, it's going to come to that moment. And I'm, Thanks, cur- man. I'm curious to know if that was there from the jump. Like, did you have that in your head or were you discovering it as you wrote? I mean, for sure. I was discovering as I wrote every, every, every day it was, Cause I'm not, I don't have an education in how to write. I've just read a bunch of books. So I would write and then I'd be like, well, what would his next day look like after opening for these guys on the road? And for so many years, like, well, I know what we do in the morning. I know how he would pass his time. And then when he got to Denver in the book, I mean, it just made sense that he would try and reconnect with his family, you know, like it sounds so pretentious and I don't want to be falsely humble or anything like, but I just, I didn't know what I was doing, man. I was just figuring it out just like everyone else was kind of. Yeah. But I think like, you know, you talk about getting an education, reading books is how you get an education for sure, man. Yeah. And how how to write books. I don't think, and then you got to just stumble and figure it out for yourself. And like, I feel like every book is its own beast. You know, that's my, that's what I've taken away from having conversations with writers over the years is that. It's not like you do it once and you do it well and then you got it. Like, yes, you pick up some some skill, but then you start over again. It's like you got to learn yeah. how to do that one. It's its own thing. Well, that's what all the writers I like always said was just like, you know, books are made out of books. Uh, you know, and I can definitely tell when I'm reading, like I re- reread my book for editing. I can be like, oh, shit, I was reading a bunch of Graham Greene during this chapter. Like the columns are really flying in these sentences. Uh or, you know, when you're reading too much Dennis Johnson and there's a bunch of lavender in the sky and you're like, oh, shit, you just you realize what a hack you are in the end, you know. But luckily in writing, if you can synthesize it and like put a spin on it, that's what writing is, I think. So did you when you were the kind of uh, amusing yourself with writing this book while you were, uh, you know, as you put it, like widowed in Las Vegas while your wife was at med school and all your friends were back in Denver, like was it? something that you were doing seriously with a like a serious intent to publish or was it something you were doing just to kind of keep yourself from going crazy do you know what i'm saying like how much yeah. how much how much business thinking was going into it versus i'm just going to entertain myself and try to keep my brain healthy man there's so little business thinking that goes into any part of sam talent industries <laughs> i'm so bad at that shit uh i really wanted to because i like my reading such a big part of my family and stuff. And I've always been such an admirer of fiction that I was like, well, maybe I can do this and put out a book and maybe sell like 500 copies. But, uh, I just had to do it. Like you said, to not go mental in the desert. Cause you can't even go outside in Vegas, man. You can't go outside until midnight. Cause it's 120 degrees. So I was just locked in this fucking house, losing it, smoking way too much weed. Uh, yeah. So no, there was, it wasn't like a preconceived situation. I'm glad it worked out, but I just had to get it out of me. I had to prove I could do it. Did you write while stoned? Oh, yeah. Brutally stoned. And since then, I've quit weed. So now I'm writing the second book, and it's like, oh, this is so much harder. <laughs> I'm so much more in my own way. Oh, really? Because I, you know, I've, uh, I've, I have a complicated relationship with weed. Like I, 
I like the idea of being able to be an elegant stoner. And I used to smoke a ton of weed, yeah. uh, especially back when I lived in Colorado. <laughs> uh, but as I've gotten older, I got, I have kids. It just, I don't tolerate it. Like I have a very low tolerance, first of all, but on any kind of, kind of consistent basis, I find I can't hack it. Like it, it fucks with my head eventually. And I just I get annoyed. Yeah. I mean, I smoked weed every day from 13 until 29, uh, just like mad amounts of weed, man, just burning it down all day, every day. And so did all my friends and the lifestyle of a comedian lends itself to being stoned all the time. Cause you only work like an hour or two hours a day. And then when you're on stage and you're stoned, you're like, Oh, I'm the most creative man alive. Like, you know, I'm fucking Jim Morrison up here riding the snake. And then, uh, then I just said, like, you, like, as soon as I had more responsibility and realized, like, how precious life is as far as, like, it being your only chance through, I started having these crazy heart palpitations and, like, thinking I was dying all the time. And, you know, like, my best friend, it was like walking in on your best friend fucking your wife. Like, it was a huge letdown. Uh, and now I can't smoke weed anymore without just flipping. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a natural progression. I mean, to some degree, it's a natural progression. I know there are exceptions. I have friends who seem to be high functioning stoners. They're like a better version of themselves when they get high. They do all the shit that I do. They just do it high. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like kudos, you know, I, I wonder what it's like, but like, I just, I don't have the wiring. I know what it's like. And I'm jealous of those people still <laughs> like Doug Benson said in super high me. He's like, we just makes everything a little bit more fun. And I totally think that's true. I miss being chonged all day, every day, dude. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough knowing what it was like and not having it. But you just, like, it shifted for you, though. You have a panic attack now, basically, if you smoke weed. Yeah, for sure. I have, a, like, a severe panic disorder, severe panic response to weed. <laughs> it's nuts. Oh, man. So, okay, so you're writing this book. You're stoned. You're in Las Vegas. It's 120 degrees. And you have kind of, like, a vague idea of publishing it, like, putting it in print and selling a few copies. But you had to have a growing sense as you were writing this thing that it was working, uh, like it was good, you know, I, yeah. I, I have to believe that. Like at what point did your, did, did your dreams start to expand? You know, did, did your idea for what's possible for this book start to expand or did it expand? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I knew it was good. I, that's one thing about everything that I create. Like I really want it to be good or I won't let anyone see it. Like no one read this book until I had had it finished in the way that I wanted it finished. And I think it was right after he has he like meets up with his son in Boulder and they have that uh, dinner in the barbecue restaurant. Right. I worked so hard on that fucking ch that passage, man. And when I got through it, I was like, holy shit, like you're writing. You're actually doing it, man. Like way to go. Uh, and then the final two or three chapters of that book just I think I finished the book in like a month. Um, yeah. And I, I was like, this is good. Way to go. And then I let my dad read it, who turned me on to all the cool books that I read. And he was like, holy shit, you wrote this? Like, I knew you were smart, but this is startling. He literally said startling. And then I got all weepy-eyed. And then I was like, okay, cool. Well, you think it's good. So and then I was like, well, how do I monetize this? <laughs> you know, how do I make this into merch? Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so dad is your first reader. You never had any editorial help. No, my dad did, uh, you know, he went through and made sure I spelt all the words right and I used the semicolons correctly, but I never had any editor or anything for content. I just had like copy editing. Okay, I was going to say, did you had to have somebody copy edit it. Yeah, I had my dad and then a couple other fans of my comedy stepped up when I like talked about finishing the book on social. They were like, hey, can I put my eyes on that? And I was like, you can, but I need you to make sure that I didn't use the word poor scene too many times. That was the big note the first time through was you have to figure out a new way to call people fat. Because I was using poor scene all the damn time, man. Uh, and then you have the book, uh, I'm imagining you have to, you know, design it. I know all that goes into it. I've done this, uh, before, like for a, a small press that I used to run and it's a lot that goes into it. You know, you gotta, if, if you're doing it yourself, you gotta make all the calls like in f- from everything from, uh, you know, page layout, font, uh, cover design, all that stuff. You go, yeah. th- you go through all those paces, you make the thing into a physical book object and then. And then what? Like you get this into the hands of comedian friends? Like what was the next step? So there was a step in between that where I was trying to sell it traditionally through the literary agent. And then when that kind of came to a a conclusion, uh, quarantine hit, you know, and I make all my money being on the road doing shows for people in packed rooms. So March of last year, I was in New Orleans for the month while my wife was doing a rotation and then the world shut down. And I was like, well, shit, what do I do with this? And my buddy, Andrew Polk, who did the entire book layout was like, well, I can lay that book out for you. And I was like, yeah, man, but like I can sell it probably. And he's like, we need to make some money, you know, like, I don't know what you're going to do. I have a job, but you don't like you should probably put that book out. And I was like, fuck, you're right. So he laid it out and made it presentable inside. And then uh, my old buddy took a picture of me with a Polaroid and that became the cover. And then another old friend did the cover and the uh, the back cover and ordered it up through Amazon. And then I said on May 2nd of last year, my birthday, I was like, hey, I'm going to sell 303 signed copies of this book I wrote. And I sold out of that 303 signed copies within the hour of putting it online. And then I was like, okay, I'll sell more. And then two days later, I'd sold 1,200 copies. And I was like, holy shit. Um, and then it just took off from there. And who, who's printing it? You said Amazon you're using as your printer? 
Yeah, I am. I'm switching over to uh, this like publishing or this these people who print uh, like nature catalogs for the National Forest Service. I met this guy in uh, the mountains of Colorado, and he's going to start printing them so I can get away from Amazon. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I understand like for convenience, like it's hard to escape. And when you're just trying to get a book to market, uh, you know, you, like that's where most people shop, like it or not. Yeah, it was a mad scramble, but I'm also competing with Amazon because I want people to buy it off my website so I can make more money, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I have a real... I mean, I'm glad they were there for me and I didn't know what else to do. I'm also like pretty... Uh, I don't know. I'm ingenious in certain ways and then incredibly lazy and stupid in other ways. And just the fact that Amazon made it so simple, I was like, well, surely this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I hear you. I and mean, it's a lot. To, I mean, it's hard enough to, to write the fucking thing. And then you've got to, yeah. you've got to go do all the design work, all the pre-pub stuff. Then you've got to get it to market. Then you've got to go out and sell it. I mean, mm -hmm. you're, you're a one man band. Yeah, I literally sell all these books out of my garage. Like after this, I'm going to be packaging and shipping and then going to the post office. And how many copies are you selling a day on average? Uh, well, I've never not had a day where I haven't sold at least one book on my website. And I think uh, I'd say on average I'm selling like 50 books a week out of my house. And then there's the Amazon sales, which – I don't look at it anymore because whenever I do, I get pissed that they're selling more books than me. I just always do that math of like, damn, if I had those sales too, we'd be, we'd be living. Right. But yeah, probably around 50 books a week. Well, shit. Now I feel I bought a couple copies off of Amazon. <laughs> I should have bought That's them. That's fine, man. That's great. <laughs> just get my book, people. I don't care. <laughs> if you want it signed, go to samtalent.com. You get a nice little personal letter, but however you get my book, just get it. I'm fine with that. Okay. And have you had any, have you been approached by any publishers? traditional publishers wanting to buy the rights and publish this thing no man and that's a question that i have um so i sold the audiobook rights i've optioned the film rights all that stuff's good and gone but like now i like i just read all the penn faulkner award winners of the last 10 years and i like a lot of them are really really good like that uh, atticus lish book like blew my fucking doors open but I also some of my read and I'm like, damn, how do I fucking get in this circle? Like, how do I get my book submitted for this? And also the fact that it hasn't been reviewed by any major newspaper. Like I read the Sunday New York Times. I read all those book reviews. I fucking love the Atlantic and the Paris Review. And the fact that like big literature still hasn't come to me and, you know, said way to go, pig. Uh, that just gets me so pissed. So I'd like to maybe sell it off, but I'd lose a bunch of money because I make a bunch of money selling it myself and. But I really want to put out there to maybe get, you know, award recognition or just at least like in those circles. I don't know what to do, dude. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I think, I, I think it's a, a terrible commentary on traditional publishing that this book did not find a home and like a hearty reception. I think it's, I Thanks. think it's, I think it's like, it's both unsurprising, but also just astonishing. Like what miser, what, what a miserable oversight. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like what a fucked business. Like if this thing made the rounds and nobody saw the beauty in it, I'm, uh, I don't know. Somebody, somebody's going to look smart doing it. That's what I would say. Yeah. Look really smart. <laughs> Someone profit off all the hard work I've done and all the promotion I've already done. Like come in, scoop me up, be a war profiteer, carpet bag through and grab this book. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, you got to realize 14,000 copies of a book selling 
you're already triple at least what like like a good performance for a debut novel makes in the realm of traditional publishing. And I, I don't have my numbers precisely right, but I 14,000 copies is, is great. And you're just getting started. So I'm just telling you, like, you should know the business math in publishing. Uh, you know, if somebody hears that number, I think they're going to, their eyes are going to open up. I don't know if everybody's aware or anybody's aware, but you're certainly beyond where most people who publish uh, with traditional publishers get to. Well, I heard 3,000 was the goal for a debut novel. Yeah. And initially I was like, shit, I only sold like 5,000 books in the first three months. I was like, ah, oh, crap. And then I saw that number and I was like, oh, chill out, Sam. You know, whenever I start referring to myself in the third person, that's when I know I'm like having a mental break. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm really, I'm humbled and I'm grateful, man. And, uh, and I got the book into Barnes and Noble just by myself, like, I did all the shit that's really hard to do by myself. If someone wants to swoop in, go crazy. Yeah. So you have the book in your dad's hands. There's a couple of people off of social who are helping you copy edit it. Uh, at what point do you go out to other comedians? And in particular, the kinds of comedians you talked about earlier, the Doug Stanhopes, the Mark Marins, the people in your community who are sort of like leaders, you know, of the tribe and who you admire you know what i'm saying like when did you get it to them and then when did you start to hear back so i can go step by step i had kyle canane write the foreword because he's kind of uh he's like the next big everyone respects canane in the circles that i run in so he wrote the foreword and that was a big marketing move and then i hit up a bunch of comics like that i knew the day i said it was going live and i was selling copies and they all shared it and talked about it on their social media and then my friend Mishka Shubali, who's uh, another writer who I've done shows with on the road, he was like, send it to Stanhope. I sent it to Stanhope. Stanhope started talking about it every day on his Twitter. I was selling mad books off that. Stanhope calls me. He's like, hey, man, this book rules. Will you come do my podcast? I do his podcast. I stay with him for a week. He's calling Bill Burr saying the book's good. He's texting Rogan saying the book's good. Bert Kreischer gets the book. He shares about it. Uh, I send, I, I hit up Marin. I'm like, Hey man, Kreischer and Stanhope and Ron White all signed off on this book. He loves it. I do Marin. Stanhope gives the book to Rogan on the Joe Rogan show. I sell a bunch of books based on that. Um, it was just all this, it's just this tumbleweed, man. And, uh, it's been really cool, but I'm running out of, I don't know what the next trick is, man. Have you, have you <laughs> like, done, have you done Joe Rogan show yet? No, dude, that would be nuts. Uh, I know he has three copies of the book and, uh, I mean, I've fingers crossed he'll get to it. You know, he will, he'll have you on watch. He'll read it and he'll have you on. I guarantee it. I hope so, man. I mean, the audiobook has all of his friends. I literally chose like three of his buddies, uh, like Ari Shafir and him are really tight and him and Tim Dillon are really tight. And I was like, well, if I get these two, then that's Rogan adjacent. Because if I get that Rogan bump, man, I'm, I'm going to buy everyone new hats. It's going to be wild. Right. I mean, he's got a bigger audience than like Johnny Carson, right? Or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a vulgar display of power, what he has. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay. So you, you must have felt heartened. I mean, Stan Hope was like an early vocal fan and became an evangelist for you. And then Marin read it and liked it too. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got to believe it's going viral because of that. Like it's... 
Like if, if those things, if those kinds of things don't make something go viral in this culture, then I don't know if anything will. I guess Joe Rogan's the only one who can do it. <laughs> yeah, he's the big figurehead of <laughs> – I mean, yeah, I don't want to talk too much about Rogan because he said some crazy shit recently. But, uh, dude, I respect his hustle. I'd love to be on there. Uh, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> um, yeah, man. Um what was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, just like I mean, it's just it's just interesting to me, and I think it's of interest to my audience, like many of whom are writers or aspiring writers, to hear a story about somebody who uh, put together a book on his own entirely, and then found a way to like find a big readership in the realm of literary fiction. And yeah. I think there's something specialized about your approach because you're a comedian and you know a lot of these guys and, you know, com like just comedy podcasts have a lot more traction in general, especially the upper echelon comedy podcasts than book podcasts ever will just because comedy, I think, has just got a wider audience in the culture. Yeah. Uh, so I think people out there who are writing a literary novel, you know, they might not have those same avenues to travel when it comes time to get the word out. <laughs> It's kind of, couldn't agree more, man. That's what I feel bad about is people are like, well, how do I do it? And it's like, well, do stand up for 15 years first. And then you can call in. Don't call in any favors until you get your book done. And it also helps if it's about stand up. So comedians who never have read a book can relate to it. I mean, I really don't know how to help anyone besides just having a really, really good product. I think that's the trick. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I think about the ways in which stand up comedy, just as an example, um, but I think this could carry over to other media and other art forms. You know, stand-up comedy in a way has gone through this massive deconstruction in the age of podcasts. And, uh, and, and also an, it's in, we're in an era of specialization. You know, like you said, it's all boutique now. And not only can you find your favorite specialized form of comedy out there because of the internet, but you can also develop uh, like a relationship through podcasts with, with your favorite comedian to a degree that you never could before, you know, yeah. like you can go see Whitney Cummings on stage and you can love her, her comedy, or you can watch her special on Netflix or whatever it is. And then you can also listen to like 200 hours of her on her podcast, yeah. you know, and the, the same is true for almost any comedian these days. Like it's kind of like the water we swim in now. I, I feel like it's an environment that because of the proliferation of podcasts has been not overdone. I don't know if you can ever overdo it, but it's certainly been done a lot. You know, it's been taken apart a lot in that way. It's been talked about a lot. The community has been formed, but your book goes deep uh, in a way that's new. I've never read anything about a comedian in the literary realm like this, like a character who's a comedian. I was thinking of Ignatius Riley. Uh, yeah. There's a little bit of a whiff of Ignatius Riley in, in Billy Ray Schaefer for me. I don't know if that mm -hmm. was on your, I don't know if that was in your brain when you were writing it. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, as I was reading your book and I was trying to assess like it's resonance, like, yeah, like it's, uh, it's just a great book and, and you got to make a great product if you want to get people excited about it. That's just the fundamentals of it. But it's also doing something and working on a level that the realm that's new to the realm of comedy, as far as I know. Uh, and maybe I'm missing something. Like, is there something in the, in the genre that you've read and were inspired by, and we're trying to sort of like stand on its shoulders? No. Um, 
The only two books that I found that are about actual comedians, Bill Maher wrote a terrible book about a comedian that you can't find anymore because it was such a joke that Stanhope gave me a copy of. Um, and then there's a book by Don Carpenter who wrote Hard Raid Falling, which is just a great New York review of books. Just put it out. He wrote a book called A Couple of Comedians, which is kind of about like a classic comedy duo. And it's just more about people doing cocaine in the late 70s, early 80s in like studio heads homes. It really, I've never read a book that has anything to do with a comic being on stage. And I think that's where I really uh, I can hang my hat on that and kind of say that that's really never been done before is the actual here's what it feels like to be doing stand up. Those were the hardest parts to write were the parts where he was on stage to make it a sound like what a comedian would say b sound funny, like writing jokes in prose is very hard. And then c also not make it too funny, because if it was too funny, like he would have he wouldn't have had such a fall from grace. You know, so it was like I was serving three different masters with that. Interesting. Yeah, I had, I didn't think of it that way because the prose, like the the comedy sections of the book, they work and they're funny, and you could, you know, it's a believable that this guy would be a comedian. Um, but I didn't think about the fact that if you made it too funny, you'd fuck the book up. You know, maybe not too funny isn't right, but like too insightful or too uh, too much self awareness. Like he had to still have kind of the hacky road dog trappings that guys like this have because there's guys like out working to do these shows all the time who we've never heard of and whose like credits were you know they were on tv 25 years ago they're just kind of vestigial tales of the comedy boom that happened in the late 80s and they haven't died off because they have no other options but like they're not that funny anymore and all they're worried about is selling their t-shirts after the show because that's how they make all their money so I wanted him to be like that, but still also be able to have these like, I still wanted Norm Macdonald to respect what he had been, you know, uh, maybe not what he is now, but, um, yeah, like if he was too smart up there and doing like, like this guy for sure still does Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky jokes, you know, that's the kind of comic he is. He's not necessarily working on new stuff. He's very good at crowd work and riffing and being in the room and being in the present, but I don't think he has the notebook out very often. You know, I don't think he's like actually writing new stuff. I think he's just trying to survive for 45 minutes so he can get drunk and high. And Billy Ray Schaefer is, uh, you know, the character is built just as an amalgam of a lot of people you've crossed paths with over the 15 years that you've been working as a road comic. Yeah, I, that's the best part is every comic who's read this book has been like, oh, I know this guy. And then it's a name that I've never heard before. You know, it's like I used to open for this guy in Kentucky all the time who did exactly this or, oh, there was a guy who worked Maine to Boston all the time who was exactly this guy. And I've never heard of him. They're just these kind of like, you know, legends that are out there. Um, but specifically, Ollie Joe Prater, Rick Kearns, Troy Baxley. These are the guys who I had in mind when I was writing this. Those are the guys and they're still out there working. No, Ollie Joe's like dead of a heart attack at like 45. Uh the other two are uh, are barely holding on. But like when I started doing stand up in Denver, Rick Kearns and Troy Baxley were the gods. And we all just like, you know, we were prophets of their churches. And uh, <laughs> and then you kind of watch their decline. and You're like, oh, shit, I, that lifestyle is not sustainable. This is the book. This, this the guy in my book is the guy that every comedian is afraid of turning into. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, that is a good way to put it. And it's a cautionary tale. <laughs> It is, yeah, and it's also yeah, it's like it's like really sad, uh, emotionally affecting book, in ways in ways that I 
was a little bit surprised by like the the level of my emotional involvement you know i really felt for this guy um you know it's it's always it's always strange when a book gets me because uh it's a little bit of a mystery like what's it has something to do with maybe the weather or how yeah. you know my mood that day or whatever what yeah what i ate you know that you know what i'm saying like yeah. the timing is right but the the stars aligned uh for me on this one and i really got into this dude and his life and i was kind of rooting for him even though i had a sense that you know some people get past the point of no return you know or it, yeah it gets close to that at least and that's um, interesting to me that you were rooting for him because I really find this guy pretty deplorable. So when people were like, oh, I like this guy, it's like, well, I really tried not to give you too much to like about him. I, I didn't. I don't know if like is the word I would use, but I felt for him, you know? Sure. He's broken. Um, yeah. And he's, he had empathy. Yeah. Well, and, but, you, but you have empathy. Like the thing is, is that like, you know, I know you, you don't think that he's all that great of a guy. He's clearly got a spotty track record, but uh, – you know, when you were writing the book, I have to imagine that you had like real compassion for him on some level, right? I mean, you couldn't have been sitting there writing about him with contempt. No, there was no contempt, but I really did. You know, he's battered and bruised. I really put him through a gauntlet. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I love this guy. I love comedians. Like I have, it doesn't matter if someone could be the most hacky comic and do the most awful comedy, but if they're good in the room and they're killing... I think that every comedian can be like, I hate his act. I hate what he's saying. He's a good comedian. Like you, you have to divorce those two things in your head of like respect for the act and just respect for the craft. And this guy has craft. So like I did, I was, I wanted him to succeed on stage. You know, I want him to win. And uh, I think he wins on stage a lot more than he wins off stage. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I think too, there's a line from the book that I'm going to paraphrase and uh, you know, he so something like I don't know if Billy Ray says it. I guess he probably does, or he thinks it. Where he's like, you know, um, like I was or he was the hardest thing that it is to be funny, or something like that. Like being funny yeah. is the hardest thing that it is to be. Yeah, uh, and that stuck to me. I was like, yeah, you know, it is hard in this shit world to be consistently funny. And so I can imagine being a comedian and having that sort of like frame of mind, you know, where you're watching some guy on stage whose act you think is shit, but who's doing well and having just that baseline level of respect because, you know, whatever your approach, if you, if you're getting laughs, you've earned them somehow. Right. I mean, it's hard to, you can't fake that, you know, people aren't going to fake laugh at you for more than, you know, I guess, what do you get? You get like five minutes or maybe, or two minutes. If you're famous, they, they'll go along and just laugh at whatever you say, but after a while it's got to be real. Yeah, I think Seinfeld said you get a minute. They'll give you a free minute where they're like beholden and just so happy you're there. And then if you're not funny, they're like, oh, this guy sucks. He's a dinosaur, you know? Right. Yeah. So, Well, I think uh, I, I feel like that's got it. I feel like there's something similar between comedians and professional athletes. Uh, it, it has to breed a certain cold-bloodedness after a while in terms of how you see the world. Uh, because you either have it or you don't like, you know, it's like with sports, like numbers don't lie. You know, you're either out there performing and putting up the numbers or you're not. And if you're a comedian, you're either out there putting bodies in the club or in the seats and you're getting laughs or you're not. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, it feels like such a Brad, hold on. My neighbor is weed whacking. Let me uh, move this setup away from this. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) What a freak show it is. (laughs) 
It's honestly, uh, I feel, I feel like these kinds of like, I feel like this kind of, uh, stuff is like par for the course, especially during the pandemic. I mean, this is, this is like the most charm I think zoom has is people having to deal with their neighbors shirtless, (laughs) just blasting weeds and smoking palm oils. Is that what's happening? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's my neighbors have six different Jeeps and they're very proud of them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that even if you're not selling the tickets and you're not putting the butts in seat yourself, whoever's assembled there, you still have to please. Like, that's the thing about stand-up is you're just trying to please people. I mean, yeah, there's a competition to it and you want to, I mean, I want to dominate the room. I want to make people like physically sick from laughter. But at the end of the day, like every comic just wants people to have a giggle for however long they're on stage. It's a very weird, uh, like skill to try and, uh, monetize is like this really ephemeral thing. That's impossible to, uh, define. And also when you start talking like this, like I can hear all of my comedian friends who will listen to this, just saying like, listen to this pretentious SOB, like what the fuck is he blathering on about? It's very hard to sound like, uh, it's very hard to have these kind of artistic conversations without having that narrator in my head. That's like, he didn't know what he was talking about. All of his friends made fun of him. So (laughs) I feel the same way talking about books, you know, it's, I mean, you know, you just, it's easy to sort of like uh, make a misstep or you, you sort of subject yourself to ridicule when you do it, but you got to try. And I think too, there's no way to write a novel like the one that you've written without thinking deeply uh, about this stuff and and you said it was the hardest part of the book to write i think for reasons that are of a similar ilk you know you, you, it forces your hand you have to start to talk in ways that could subject you to ridicule from your peers yeah. you know when you oh. want to try to become on the page in this book you know an authority on what it's like to be standing at the curtain at that threshold before stepping into the spotlight you know, you better not fuck it up. You know, it better ring true. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. you know, your your book isn't going to work and you're going to be the butt of your friend's jokes, you know, for having tried. And uh, yeah, to, your, <laughs> to your credit, though, to your credit, I feel like those sections of the book were done extraordinarily well. And I think it's it's part of the reason or a big part of the reason why I would imagine so many of your peers have been so enthused about the book is because you gave language to an experience that is, you know, among the most important to them in their lives and had previously perhaps been ineffable. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and so kudos to you, you know, you, you gave it language. I think what I just said is maybe a better or a more specific way of saying what I was trying to say earlier about how your book fills a hole or like a gap in the comedy landscape that is obviously oversaturated now with podcasts. And then you have the the thing itself on stage in clubs, at least as it used to exist prior to the pandemic. But this book has its own space. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's performing a useful function that had not been performed, uh, you know, other than in Bill Maher's like shitty novel or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, thank you so much. That's the issue with uh, like taking stand up seriously is it's a silly thing, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, it's just jokes. I mean, no matter how up your own ass you want to get about, I'm telling the truth up there, you know, it's like, well, you're still trying to make people laugh. So anytime you hold up this like artistic, uh, like magnifying glass to comedy, you really get in some precarious waters 
Uh, and I'm just really happy to hear you say that you think that I navigated that because that was what I was most, most worried about. And also, I told you off air, but like, this is my favorite podcast, man. <laughs> like, I've listened to that episode of you and Otessa Moshfag like three times, man. Um, so I've been very nervous right now. <laughs> like, uh, really? More nervous than when I did Kreischer. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. I, but I, I, I guess like I can kind of understand how, like, I understand listening outside your zone. Like, I, ma I imagine you can only tolerate listening to so many comedy podcasts because that's what you're doing every day. Yeah, uh, I get letters sometimes from people who are like, I'm an architect, you know, and it, like it helps me to listen to your show or I'm an animator, you know, and it's like, oh, OK, that makes that almost makes more sense to me than somebody who's like swimming in books every day. Um, yeah. You know, I appreciate every listener, but I I don't know. I sort of get why, especially as a comedian who's trying to write a book like you could listen to a show like this with a with a sense of oxygen or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure, man. I mean. Like when I did Marin and I sat in the chair Obama sat in, like you had Saunders the God on here, you know, <laughs> like it, there's there's a lot of uh, big footsteps and it's just really cool to be. There's another thing that I'm craving is to be like accepted by people who would listen to this podcast. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I just I really want people in literature to be like, hey, way to go. You know, you did it. It's it wasn't coming. just a book for comedians or comedy fans. Yeah, it'll come. It'll come. I, I have faith in that. I really do believe in, in the quality of the book that you wrote. So I, I would imagine you're just going to have to be a little bit patient, but it'll happen. Um, and that's the thing about being a comic is I'm so impatient because on stage, the gratification is immediate. And you always know if you're doing good and you're doing the job of being funny or if you're bombing. It's second by second. So patience is, is not something that I'm really like built for after doing comedy for so long. That's another thing that Seinfeld, uh, you know, you just mentioned him, but I want to say, I, I can't remember when he said this. It was either in one of the documentaries he does or in the comedians and uh, getting coffee, you know, like talking about how miserable writing a book is precisely because of the conditioning that he's um, used to from his career on stage. You know, you never know what, even when you put the book out, like, yeah, it might sell, but you, you're not getting the laughs. You're not seeing the person read the book. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's got to, and like, that is like a level of mystery. It's a very opaque process. Even when a book does quote unquote, well, you know, you, it's a mystery to you how people are experiencing it, unless you hear from them directly somehow or meet them at an event or something. Yeah, man. I mean, that was the worst part of writing this book was just being in that vacuum at my kitchen table, just typing for eight hours a day. Like, I didn't know if it was a complete waste of time or if it was the, uh, you know, the future of modern literature. Like I hoped it would be <laughs> like it was I couldn't tell my wife. She'd be like, how's the writing going? I'd be like, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it's going. But so. I, I get that sense of privacy, too. Like I don't show anything I'm working on to anybody. Yeah, because you're not a psycho. Yeah, I mean, just especially like it's just a private act. It's also yeah. like. I don't watch people, people don't watch me jerk off either. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. It's the gross thing I do to make myself feel better. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's also like maybe some shame, you know, you're just like, what am I doing? You know, talking to myself at this keyboard for yeah. eight hours a day, you know, it's a, it's a, it feels ridiculous. And the odds are extraordinarily long that a book is ever going to really catch a wave. You know, you just don't know because yeah. here's the thing. We've talked about the quality of the product, you know, to diminish it, uh, you know, but for lack of a better term, you know, the, the product has to be high quality if you hope to have any success at anything. That seems rudimentary and obvious. 
But one of the great frustrations and maybe the core frustration that's driven me to do this show over all these years is reading extremely books that I consider to be extremely well done that have found no readership uh, yeah. or like a very small readership. I will never not be animated by that experience. It pisses me off so much. And I've always, it's like an injustice to me, you know, that writers of that caliber who are doing that kind of work are not closer to the center of the cultural conversation. Yeah. Um, and it happens all the time. So, you know, you talk about working in that vacuum and trying to do the best you can, feeling a little bit silly about it and unsure about how the thing is going to turn out. And, you know, and then you do a really good job. You, you make the product and it's really good. You still have to catch a wave, you know? And yeah. I, I guess we've talked a little bit about this already, you know, talking about the, the network that you'd built in comedy um, that was sort of there for you once you got this thing done that helped to, to send it on its way. You know, not every writer has like, you know, people are writers are loners, you know, maybe to a degree that even comics aren't because at least comics are in a club with other people, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. there's still some proximity to society. Yeah. Uh, you know, at least for an hour a day. Um, yeah. but what it's making me think about, you know, especially the struggles that you've had to get this book, uh, you know, accepted by mainstream presses, but also to sort of like, you know, crack the code of the MFA crowd or whatever it is, it, you know, it really brings to mind in this era, in the digital age, in the podcast age or whatever you want to call it that we live in, the necessity of community. Um, you know, I guess you can, there are, are going to be rare instances where a writer or a, or a person can succeed without it based solely on luck and the merits of their work. But man, it seems like you really are doing, you know, it's an uphill battle to do it in the absence of that. Yeah. I don't know how I would have done it otherwise. I mean, luckily people have been buying my t-shirts off my website for years. So this was just another piece of merch they could purchase is how I looked at it initially. And then, uh, I was able to do it, but I mean, I don't want to like totally bum out any people who were writing, you know, who have their first draft done and they're like, Oh, I'm going to straight to the moon now because I feel like there is a lot of failure in publishing and this book is an indictment of that. There's just all these really good books. I mean, not that Tyrant, you know, uh, wasn't this insanely cool thing, but before Atticus Lish, like a bunch of really cool authors had to go through Tyrant. And I don't know how many books they sold, but all those books are really cool and innovative. I mean, I just don't know unless my dad was like, you, you know, if you want this book to sell, you should put a vampire in it. You know, like that was his like you know, way of summing up what he thought about modern books. And I just, I hope, I hope that if you write a good enough book, people will read it. Um, I still want to believe in the idea of books and publishing enough to, that these gatekeepers have to know what they're doing if they still have their jobs. Um, so yeah, like don't get, don't get uh, defeated before you get the book done. If anyone out there is reading and working right now, uh, because I do think there's still a shot for really, really good books. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Tyrant because I, that's I was I could not help but think of Gion, uh, you know, as I was reading this. Uh, this is exactly the kind of book that I feel like he would have seen the beauty in. It's a shame he never got a chance to read it because I feel like he would have loved it. Oh, it tears me up, man. I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, until his passing, I didn't even know what a 
maverick he was. And then I read every interview with him. And I listened to your interview that you put back up with him like a couple times. And then I ordered the entire catalog of Tyrant Books and just been going through them. And I mean, Cherry, that book by Nico Walker that he passed on to bigger publishers, that was probably my favorite book of the year it came out. I think it was 2019. That book was such a, just a fucking knife wound in the stomach that, uh, I really hope that I would have been able to find a home with him if I knew he existed. You know? I, I mean, I, 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 you know, who knows? It's all speculation, but I couldn't help it. Yeah. I can't help but feel like you would have had a good shot. And um, also, it was cool to find out that I was his type. You know, a big burly man. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like, he would have loved you for multiple reasons. Yeah, but uh, I could have finally used my sex appeal. <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh, I loved. I, I share your admiration too for um, preparation for the next life, the Atticus Lish book. Yeah, that's the name of it, right? Yeah. Preparation for the, yeah. I mean, t- I, I can't imagine there's too many novels written this century that are better than that. That's a very good book. It's nuts how good it is. It makes me furious how good it is. Sorry, I'm he's yelling. got another. He's, don't yell. No, it's a. <laughs> it's all right. He he. Uh, he's got another one coming out this year called The War for Gloria. Oh man, I can't wait. Um, okay. So let's, where are you from? Let's talk about biography. Like, I want to just get a sense of, of, uh, like, you know, who you are from the roots. Are you from Colorado? Yeah. My, hold on. My neighbor's done with his once a quarter lawn maintenance. Uh, I'm going to go back to better lighting. I'm from Eastern Colorado. I'm from like an hour and a half away from Kansas and about an hour away from Denver. Um, I'm exactly in the middle of Denver and Colorado Springs is where I'm from. And, uh, you know, population of a thousand people. Our biggest thing is a rodeo once a year, Elizabeth, Colorado. Great place to be from. I got the hell out of there as soon as I turned 18. Okay. And where did you go? Uh, I was going to play football and then that didn't work out. So I, I was supposed to go to CU Boulder to play ball and then that fell through. So I went to, uh, Metro State University, Metro State College of Denver at the time, which was a commuter college uh, right in downtown Denver, on the same campus as University of Colorado Denver. And then I got into doing improv in Denver and then uh, kind of was disillusioned with the whole college thing. I was trying to do stand up and improv. So I ran away to Ithaca, New York for like two years where my best friend went to college and we were in a... a band that toured all over for five or six years. Um, and that was like, I don't know. That was a real heady time, a lot of LSD. And just living in like an anarchist commune with my best friend and not having any money and dumpster diving. And it was really creative time and really rewarding. What was the name of the band? It was called Red Versus Black. We were like, uh, I mean, we were so, we were so utopian. We were like anti-capitalists, anti-statists, um, the people we lived with would sign their rent checks in blood. They would write hypocrite on the me- on the memo line, like that kind of thing. <laughs> so, and we would just tour, and then I'd run out of money and have to go home, and I'd re- re-enroll in college to get the like the college money, uh, and then do stand up, and then move out to Ithaca again for like two months, and then come back and do stand up and be in college and tour with the band and fail out of college and get really good at stand up, and that's what I did until I met my wife. Damn. Okay. So like, at what point in the process did you start to think to yourself, like, I'm a professional comedian or do you feel that way? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you conceive of yourself? Like at what point do you turn pro? 
I mean, as soon as you can pay your rent, I think as soon as you don't have any other source of income. So that was uh, 11 years ago for me, as soon as I, also I had like, you know, I had zero overhead, man. <laughs> my rent was like 120 bucks a month and I shared a bed with my best friend so we could have a cheaper room. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just as soon as you can, that's the thing about stand up is there's like no barrier for entry. Like if you went and did an open mic tonight, you could call yourself a comedian, you know, like you were what a comedian does. And I think that being a professional is just being able to live off of the money you make at stand up. So, and to do that, you've got to, like, can you work a town like Denver and do that? I guess if you're living cheaply enough, you might be able to, but it seems like there are some steps you've got to take, you know, not dissimilar to what you got to do when you want to be a writer. Like you've got to get an agent at some point, I would imagine. I've never no. had an agent or a manager. No. I mean, I feel like the internet is totally making agents and managers just petrified wood. Cause now you just, you know, get a podcast going or get a big social media following or have a big YouTube channel. And then these people who've never done stand up can go work comedy clubs because they can sell tickets. Right. And comedy clubs are holding on. So you've all of these people who just make funny TikTok videos and then they get in front of a crowd of live people and either they eat their ass or they dominate because their fans are there and their fans don't care. This is a whole different situation. But my way to get into being a professional comedian was to host open mics and run showcases. So if you live in Denver, I hosted a Monday night mic, a Tuesday night mic and hosted a showcase and made like $150 a week off those. And then I would kind of... uh you know, pad that money by going out on the, on the weekends and doing shows where you make a hundred bucks, 200 bucks coming back home, you know, just stuff money for like weed and cigarettes was all I really needed at the time. Right. Right. And you learn, you know, like you, like you got to do your, it's like your apprenticeship or it's the only way to learn is to get up there and do it. Right. Yeah. You have to get your, you know, your Gladwell hours in. Um, and I, you know, I, I was so enamored and I romanticized the road so much that, I would just go to New Orleans for a week and do every open mic and stay on the floor of some guy that I met when he came through Denver. And then the next time you go back, you get to do the showcases and you, maybe you make 200 bucks while you're there for a week. And then the next time you get to go back and headline all the shows and, uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Very sorry about this to the listeners, but, uh, yeah, just working the road was my way to get into it. And also, I got to do longer sets all the time. I'd get to do a half hour or 45 minutes or an hour while my friends were at home doing seven-minute sets. Do you ever get a like a mentor? Like, you know, like are there older guys who've been on the road longer, who've had more success? Anybody like take you under their wing? Or is it mostly just like picking stuff up by watching them work, you know, from the wings? Yeah, I mean, there was, if you think about stand-up as like a high school cast system, when I was a freshman... You know, when the juniors, the sophomores and the juniors would be like, hey, you're funny. Why don't you come do my open mic? And you're like, OK. Or, hey, you're funny. I do this show. Do you want to come do it? Sure. Or, hey, do you have a half hour? Do you want to go feature for me in North Dakota in an oil field? And you're like, yeah, of course. And it's that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> right. where it's just taking every gig and being undeniable in every room was always what I thought the job of a comic was, was to be able to be funny for everyone, you know, whether it be like, you know, hipsters in bookstores or men who work for their, with their hands and you probably use racial slurs. Like I wanted to always be funny for everyone. And that's luckily being in Colorado. I got that because Denver was such a comedy hub. And then we would go work in, you know, Scotts Bluff, Nebraska or 
Rock Springs, Wyoming. So you've got all these like cool comedy fans in Denver, and then you go out and do comedy for people who have probably never been to a comedy show before, and you just got strong in every setting. Did you really work in an oil field? Oh, yeah, I've done oil fields a lot. Those gigs pay insane money, dude. You'll sell all your merch. Uh, like in the Dakotas, when they have these booms, the towns will be built up of uh, tough sheds, you know. And uh, I've been to towns like Mandan, North Dakota, when the oil was really flowing, where a Bud Light would be 20 bucks because all the oil workers would come into town with just like 10 to 15K in cash in their pockets. And you do shows where you had no business making as much money as you made, but that's just the hyper that's just what the cost of everything was because everyone had so much money. You'd sell all your merch, people would buy t shirts for a hundred bucks, you know. Uh yeah, just boom times, baby. And I always felt like I have a certain like a romantic notion of the road, like most the artists probably do. I know writers have that, comedians have that, but then uh musicians have that and eventually though you always wind up hearing tales of whoa you know it's it's about like the loneliness of a shitty hotel room i mean you write about this at length in the book uh i guess that's how it really goes like eventually it like it loses its luster i you know as a young man i could think of maybe f few things i would have liked more than to be traveling from weird town to weird town doing comedy or writing or you know whatever it is i wanted to do like that would have sounded really good to me at, like at what point does it tip into like oh god i'm exhausted i can't do this you know without medicating <laughs> myself uh i mean it was it was the best way to spend my 20s man just on the road constantly doing the thing that you love the most in the world which is stand-up comedy but then i remember i think i was 29 or 28 and i was back in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Huntsville, Alabama, I can't remember. And it was like my third time working that market that year because they were very nice to me and they always they open an invite, come to our bar show whenever. And on the flyer, it said the heart, no, the underground, the underground king returns. And it's like, I'm 28 or 29. Like, how long do I have to be underground for? Like, I keep selling this venue out. Why do I keep coming back here? And I just had this complete existential panic attack in the parking lot somewhere either Tennessee I think it was Chattanooga and I just remember like calling my then girlfriend now wife and being like am I wasting all my time like what's this all mean like you know how many pounds of flesh am I going to sell for $300 like I miss you I miss being home I haven't slept in my own bed I also used to do these oh like these like long ass like five weeks on the road like from Colorado up to Maine down to Pensacola across to San Diego and then back through the desert runs. And I was bad at money. I was sleeping on floors. I was drinking way too many Bud Lights. I mean, if the, if the shows aren't worth it, then if you're, I don't know how to put it, but if the work isn't rewarding, stand up is a really, really hard thing to keep doing, you know? Right. And, and now this past year, everybody's been off the road. Yeah, except for I guess Dave Chappelle's got like his own little fiefdom with everybody get getting tested, and he's doing outdoor shows, right? I feel yeah, like he's in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yeah, unless you have Yellow Springs and you have your own like setup or whatever, pretty much everybody's had to be removed from it. Just like you know, whatever line of work you're in, everybody's had to shift. But stand-up comedians, they're not doing their thing. Like, what's it been like for you, and has it? changed like your feelings about it or your plans for the future with it or are you itching to get back out 
if I didn't have the validation of the book, <laughs> I would have lost my mind, man. But I still had people sending me messages like, hey, good work, you know? So luckily I had people buying the book. And I mean, I, I thought I was going to lose my mind, but it was really, really refreshing to sleep in the same bed. I, it was the most I've ever been home in my life was this last year. You know, hanging out with my wife, reading a lot of books, like not eating at diners every night, like eating, cooking all of our own meals. Like it was really, it was a healthy time for me. Uh, realizing that you can be in the same house with your wife for more than four days at a time and you still love each other and get along. Like there was a lot of just focus on being a husband, a son, a friend, a brother. Like it was rewarding, man. I thought it was going to be the worst year of my life. And in a lot of ways it was, it probably added five or 10 years onto my life. You know? Yeah. That's great to hear. I mean, I think that, I guess it can go one of two ways, you know, but it's like, it's a relief to know you get along with your family <laughs> once you're like, yeah. you know, trapped in a house with them for a year. It's like, oh, okay, we, we really do get along. We really do love each other. But there are a lot of people, you know, the, the pandemic kind of created a crucible, you know, you're sort of trapped in a, in an apartment or a house with somebody that you wind up realizing you, you're not that into or you don't get along with or you know things combust so that shit that shit's been happening too but i'm i'm relieved to know that that was not the case for you <laughs> yeah i mean all i did was just lift weights and cook my own meals and read books i was just i do a bit in my act now but it was, i was just cosplaying prison <laughs> that's all i did for the last year it was like get strong read a bunch of books that i've been meaning to read and get good at cooking curry and it was it was fun man i am begging to get back out there though i've been out on the road every weekend since february 14th I got vaccinated early because my wife's a doctor, so I got the vaccine super early, and so did she. So as soon as we had our time in, I was like, hey, let's go to Key West, baby. Valentine's Day weekend, I'll get us a nice spot. I'll do the club in Key West. Florida doesn't give a shit about any of God's laws or man's laws. Let's just go off down there. Right. And uh, ever since then, man, I mean, I'm going to New Orleans on Saturday. I'm there in the southeast for two weeks just doing a whole run and spending some time in the city. And yeah, like. Now that everyone else is doing it, it was a relief because no one else was doing it. So it's like, okay, we're all chilling. But as soon as people started doing it again, the hyper-competitive nature of stand-up, I was like, well, I have to be back out there. People are getting better than this than I am if I'm not out there. So I'm back. And you bring your book to the merch table? Are you sure are you yeah. selling you selling your book from the stage? Yeah, man. I sure am. <laughs> I'm turning into one of the old road hacks I always hated. I do I close now by reading an excerpt from the book. And the excerpt is, you know, like what it's like pretty much me doing the aristocrats, just whatever the worst shit, you know, like the Pope looked the president in his eye and said, deeper, you pig, let me feel you. And then <laughs> and then I'll be like, if you'd like to know more. And that always gets a huge laugh because I'll read the the blurbs from the back of the book and be like, you know, the Denver Post said chaotic bliss, vivid prose, read like, uh, you know, read like cinema. And then I get into the book and just you know, say whatever the worst shit I can think of. <laughs> They're selling, man. It's a lot harder to bring books, though, because now I have to bring a, uh, I have to, like, check a bag instead of just packing a bunch of T-shirts into my backpack. Right. So now whenever I'm bringing these books around, I start in the hole now with merch, you know. <laughs> well, and books are heavy. Like, yeah, it sucks. A, it's, it's a terrible. lot to lug around, you know. Yeah, and I'm taking a couple Greyhounds on this next road like little thing I'm doing. I think I'm taking a Greyhound from Lafayette to Houston. So that'll be great. Lugging those damn books around. Dude, sell them to your fellow passengers. They need something to read on the, on the way. I don't know if you've ever been on a, 
Greyhound through Louisiana, but not a lot of uh, not a lot of readers, man. <laughs> hey, you never know. You never know. You could convert people. That's the best part of having this book is people who are like, hey, I've never read a book before, but I liked yours. And you're like, well, that's a very high compliment. Thank you. <laughs> that's a good start. I mean, that's an impressive starter book, I would say. That's a high-level starter book. Well, you know what's fun, too, is uh, when people are like, hey, man, I loved your book. It was just like Bukowski. And it's like, well, no, it wasn't. But that's the only book you've read, and you're trying to give me a compliment. So I, <laughs> I mean, I don't tell them this, but I just say, oh, thank you. Or like, oh, man, it was just like Hunter S. Thompson. And it's like, well, I don't think they're similar in like prose or sentence structure, but thank you for giving me the highest compliment in this limited vocabulary that you have. You know, I have to get out of my own ass and just say thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think people just look for a phrase. It's always people are always trying to compare stuff to stuff. And um, it was this kind of brings me to the next line of questioning that I have for you, which is uh, which has to do with drugs. Uh, this is some of the better drug writing that I've read in memory uh, particularly cocaine, like, God damn, you capture what it's like to do cocaine really well. And like, not only that, but like, not just like the, the high, but the low, <laughs> you know, this is a great, not only is it a great book about doing drugs, it's a great book from the perspective of what it's like to be hung over. Like, these are some painful hangovers that you're writing about. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I have to ask, like, I mean, like, I guess as a, a working comedian, and you know, I don't know. We've, I, I've lived in Colorado. I guess I just have a sense of what it might be like to be a guy who's in his twenties and is a comedian based in Colorado. Like you have to have pretty ample drug experience, like personal drug experience that you're going off of, or is this just all like hearsay that you've picked up on over the years? No, I mean, when it comes to psychedelics or weed, like I'm as well versed as I think anyone else my age. But the whole cocaine thing, that's always people's question. Like, so are you clean? Like, how's, how's the cocaine thing going? And it's like, I've done cocaine in my entire life, maybe 25 to 50 times. And it's never more than a line or a bump. And it's typically because everyone else is doing it. I don't want to look like a narc. I'm trying to impress a girl. Or they're doing cocaine using a really cool tool. Like one of the last times I did cocaine, people were doing it off the tip of a sword. And I was like, well, I don't really want to do this cocaine, but I also <laughs> want to do blow off the tip of a sword. So I guess I'll take a little bump out of that bag. But uh, I mean, my my issue has always been like, you know, 12 Miller lights. That's why the hangovers are so uh, true to life, because I've definitely woken up in some red roof inns and been like, oh, God, yes. I'm just going to cancel the show tonight. No way. <laughs> no way I'm going to get to Springfield, Missouri tonight. Uh-uh. <laughs> I don't need the 250 bucks. I can't. And then you got to drive seven hours just ruined, you know? <laughs> that's the worst. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though, is that I'm like, you know, there's something heroic and almost unbelievable to me uh, as somebody who's so fragile. Like, I really, maybe it's just my, like, as I'm getting older and into middle age, you know, I've my tolerance for hangovers is diminished, like, so much. Like, I can't. I can't power through the way that I used to. I guess that's natural, but uh, it's one thing to like wake up in a red roof inn and feel like shit and take some Advil and drink a gallon of water and like eat some fried food or whatever to try to shake it off. Yeah, it's another it's another thing to then get in a car and drive for seven hours, which I guess you know with a hangover you can do. You just listen to some music or something or a podcast. But then the part of it that gets me is getting back up on stage that night. Yeah, man. Like, and having to be performative 
like uh, in the wake of uh you know feeling that shitty you know yeah. i guess adrenaline probably helps but i mean that part of it that's where i start to go oh fuck man i would be a wreck trying to like get myself into the mind space where i could be good for people like not only on stage but just good for people period you know yeah like, no, Brad, that's very insightful. You're very correct. Because, like, the, the thing will be Thursday night I get to Louisville, and all my friends in Louisville who I see once a year want a party. You know, we do the show. It feels good. Everyone's there. Let's have a couple beers. Oh, this guy's got a couple tabs of acid. Sure, let's, you know, eat him and then go skinny dipping. You know, cool. You wake up the next morning, and you're like, okay, that's the first day. And then you go to Cincinnati, and all your friends in Cincinnati want to have the same party you had in Louisville because they only see you once a year. So you got to, you know... Same thing, party, go to bed. And the next day you got to, I don't know, drive to Indianapolis. And your friends in Indianapolis want to have the same party. So it's like if I don't hang out with these people, I'm going to let them down. And also the only way that I can like come in hungover is to then start drinking again. You know, like it's just this fucking vicious cycle, man. And I'm glad that people like me and they want to have some cold ones after the show. But, you know, that's where Adderall comes in. That's the big secret performance enhancer in stand-up. Uh, well, I was, but it's it's no different than cocaine. I mean, Adderall pharmacologically is just trucker speed, right? But it's safe. It's not like there might not there's not going to be fentanyl in your Adderall. Like if you're getting it from you know, whichever friend of yours has Adderall in town. I know exactly five milligrams of Adderall will carry me for three hours. So if the show's at eight thirty, eat the Adderall at seven thirty. Starts to come on by the time I'm on stage afterward nice little wind down and then i can still be in bed by two and asleep yeah i mean like the controlled dosage you know and correct and knowing what you're getting which is very important yeah because i mean i'm just i'm I'm afraid to do real drugs because i don't want to i don't want to die a cliche man <laughs> i kind of want to be found in a hotel room that's so scary yeah 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 no there's too much of that i feel like and uh it's also uh like more dangerous than ever this fentanyl shit you know i have a good buddy of mine uh, died in colorado actually of uh accidental opiate overdose and he just uh you know like once it happens i'm sure you've lost people i have to imagine in that world you at least know somebody through a couple of degrees of separation who've od'd right it's all the kids from my hometown we i think i've lost 13 people to overdose of kids i grew up with no shit. Yeah, because it's just a small town in the plains. There's nothing to do but get as fucked up as possible. And then eventually that goes from like, hey, let's steal some Xanax from our mom's like, you know, purse. And then they just get stuck on harder and harder shit until they're banging, you know, opiates. It's really bleak out there, man. Damn. Yeah. I read, uh, I read, uh, what's the, I think it's called Methland. You ever hear yeah. that? You ever hear that book? Yeah. It's all about how Tom Arnold's sister started meth in Iowa. Yeah, like or it just, yeah. but it also made me understand like the the social structure and the economic structure of how these like drug ep epidemics happen. And uh, you know, like I, you know, I guess opiates and meth, there might be different drivers to some degree. I mean, ultimately, it's just human suffering that you're trying to anesthetize, but. Like it never occurred to me that like people who've had their wages slashed in half and who suddenly have to work two full-time jobs to make ends meet the way that they used to might need some amphetamine to keep them from falling asleep on the job. Yeah. And they need it to be cheap. And then it, 
you know, they get their hands on some meth and it also turns out to be wildly addictive. And like the next thing they know, you know, they're five years into it and they blow their house up or whatever, cooking it in their bathroom. It's just, I can understand, you know, I wouldn't advise it and I wouldn't do it myself, but I can understand how somebody working in a slaughterhouse 18 hours a day might be like, yeah, like meth is like, it adds a little bit of fun and lightness to my day. <laughs> yeah. It's a solution, you know, like being a human's hard. Like if you have a quick solution or a quick fix, I get it. Hopefully you're able to, uh, you know, self-police yourself enough that it, you don't lose all your teeth or get caught on a military base stealing, you know, jet fuel to make more meth. But hell, if you need a little toot to get you through the swing shift, who am I to judge? Right. It also feels like uh, things have gotten, maybe it's because my awareness has grown or maybe it's because circumstances have changed, but it's hard not to look around and feel like things have gotten significantly shittier in our lifetime. Oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> so, so fast. I remember just being a kid and being like, well, everything's guaranteed because I was born an American. And now it's just an endless cavalcade of just brutality, man. <laughs> like all my friends having a tough time. Everyone's a bartender until they're 42 when they have a heart attack. Like it's just brutal out there for so many people. Just that whole thing about like the baseline of humanity or just being a human is suffering. Like we just have these like, you know, little breaks in the pain and that's what it's all about. Do you think that it's like going to lead? Like I sometimes will think to myself, like maybe this is, this is an evolutionary progression. Like we're going through a, a period in our like species level education that's painful. It's a, you know, there's going to be a lot of tragedy. Not everybody's going to make it through, but like maybe on some like universal like from some sort of like, you know, 50,000 foot perspective, like this is shit we need to go through to learn what we need to know to be better. Uh, or is that bullshit? <laughs> I think that's bullshit, man. <laughs> I don't think anyone's learning any lessons. That's the issue is like no one has any perspective anymore. And uh, all these hard fought truths that we keep accumulating are immediately forgotten about because there's a new chicken sandwich at Popeye's. We just don't have a cultural uh, attention span anymore. Like, and also, I think that we're so uh, we're drowned in all of this awful shit that we're just inundated with that it's really hard to have a have a governor to know when anything's actually that bad. You know, we're just like get this baseline like hum of oh no, and then how do you know when it's like actually a screaming oh no? You know, like I don't know what the way out is, but I think it's going to be a lot of a lot of hurt. And a lot of pain and that sucks because i'm such a romantic you know <laughs> like right it's uh it's tough it's tough to maintain any kind of positivity when you're actively participating in what's going on around you well and i feel like too uh something i struggle with a lot is how blind we seem to be to one another like i i think i feel it most acutely when i feel like people are blind to my suffering or the suffering of people that I'm close to. Yeah. Uh, it can be really demoralizing until I stop and I realize how, how blind I am <laughs> to the suffering of someone. I mean, I'm doing the same shit. I don't even realize yeah. it. That's the whole point is that I don't even realize it. I don't even realize yeah. the person I just walked past and didn't like smile at or say hello to is like the loneliest fucking person on the planet or is having the yeah. shittiest day. And it's like suicidally ideating two feet from me. And I, yeah. I missed it, you know? And it's like, 
I guess it's like, uh, you know, the power of one, right? You got to just come back and try to be your best self and be there for other people. And if enough of us do that, then maybe the needle will move and things will change for the better. But unless and until, like we each take it on as a, as a matter of personal responsibility on a consistent basis, we're probably fucked. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're all, you can be trying to do your best all the time and just be there for people who are strangers who are hurting. But as soon as one of them, you know, very, very slightly hurts your feelings, it's like, oh, fuck everybody. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm trying to be good and this person doesn't know how much I give a shit about humanity. Like, fuck them. Like, I'm so much more empathetic than them. Those are the kind of things I get into. Where it's like, man, if they only knew how evolved I was and how much I cared, <laughs> and then you're just back in the mud, man. There's right. no way out. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I, I uh, it's like you try to understand the issues that underlie our problems, like the core, like foundational issues. And as you get close to understanding, you somehow have to balance that against becoming like a self righteous dick who's judgmental of everyone around him yeah, for not understanding these things as well as you think you do. Mm -hmm. And then you have to balance that against like the fact that you're, you're like human beings are just fundamentally wrong about everything at a certain level. Like, you know, Correct. so like a, you get to a certain, you get to a certain like window of perspective onto it and you go, Oh, well shit. Like I, I really don't even know where I am. You know, yeah. where, where are we? We're on this ball in the middle of fucking infinite space. Like, we don't have a fucking clue what's going on. So like a little humility is in order. Uh, you know, it's all these things sort of competing in my mind at once and you, like amid all of that and probably a, a bunch of other stuff, you've got to find some kind of equilibrium. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck is the, is the answer pretty much. Cause I remember when I was a kid and I got my hands on the stranger by Camus and I was like, Oh shit, this guy gets it, you know? Uh, and then you grow up and you're like, oh, this guy doesn't understand what he's talking about at all. And then you reread it and you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm the one who's wrong. Yeah. It's still a staggering work of philosophical insight. Jesus, you just, I just keep eating my own ass, you know, <laughs> constantly. It, it's amazing, too, how a piece of art changes as, like, we change and grow older. Like, you know, you read a book when you're 14 and it blows your mind. You read it when you're 24 and you can't stand it. You read yeah. it. You read it when you're 34, and you get nostalgic. Like the shit just changes, you know. Like, uh, yeah. so it feels like when you find a book that that really grabs you or does something for you, there's like that enormous sense of gratitude because it feels like super lucky in a way. Oh yeah, whenever you can actually connect with something, that's like the best part of being alive. I think you know when a song hits you just right or. You know, I spend a lot of time outside just in the grass near the river. And when the sun just hits the water perfect and you're completely not thinking about anything besides the way the water's moving, it's really, really special. And I don't think we spend enough time trying to achieve those states of very present Zen, you know, and also I'm always comparing shit to stuff that came before. And that's a big issue with consuming, I think, novels, especially you know, because like every book that I'm reading, I'm comparing to like Dennis Johnson's Angels or Suchery by McCarthy, just these, you know, these, they're lighthouses for me. And I can always find my way back to the shore if I read those books again, because I know what good writing sounds like. And then I'll read a song like Plain Song by Kent Haruff, which is just this 
beautiful small novel about beautiful small people and I'm like, well, maybe I don't know anything. I guess that's the realization I just keep having is I don't think I know anything at the end of the day, you know? And that sounds like a cop-out, but I really don't know if any of the opinions that I hold so dear are worth a shit at the end of the day, you know? Because I'll get into these loops where it's like, okay, I feel like I have an opinion on this and people are talking about it. And I feel like that I might be more educated on the topic they're discussing. But then if I do offer any kind of perspective on this, it's just going to be something that I read somewhere else that I've totally adopted as my stance on it, even though it wasn't an original idea. So maybe I shouldn't talk right now because even if these people don't know what they're talking about, at least they're attacking it from a new perspective and I can learn from their lack of education on this. And then I just don't talk for a while. My wife nudges me and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. I don't know. I'm listening. I'm listening instead of waiting to talk. And also it's really tough for me to have the kind of conversations that we're talking about right now where it's spirited and stuff and sincere because I'm a very sincere, earnest person who exists in an industry that abhors sincerity. You know, like when I'm hanging out with comics, it's a lot of just busting balls, goofing, doing silly stuff, making jokes. And then when I get in these kind of conversations, it's like, I don't know if I really have the tools to like connect like an adult, you know, <laughs> like because I'm trying not to be like that funny. I'm trying to I don't know what I'm trying to do. I mean, I'm trying to be myself, but also I'm trying to sound like someone who might have written a book that's worth purchasing at samtalent.com. So <laughs> instead of instead of just doing crowd work on me the whole time. <laughs> yeah, dude, you know, instead of like, yeah, I mean, just trying to be present and not trying to be funny is the opposite of my entire life. The thing that I've tried to get really good at, which is be funny in the moment. Yeah, well, and I feel like too, especially if you've got that skill, like that arrow in your quiver, be incredibly tempting to go to it. Like I would, I would constantly go to it if I could do that. Oh yeah, you know? but also it, we wouldn't have talked for almost two hours if I was just here singing the whole time. You would have rolled your eyes multiple times by now if I was in comedian <laughs> mode. Yeah, you know, you don't feel like you're on. I mean, you know, like some people are like, you can tell when they're really on, but you just feel like you're being yourself. It's good. Yeah, man, I am. And also, like I said, like, this is a big deal for me and I'm really stoked to be here. So I'm just like, <laughs> it's tough, man. It's tough to go from a world where you have some kind of cachet to coming into this world and trying to be like, hi, may I have a seat at the table? You know, thank you for allowing me in the house, but may I sit down and eat as well? It's just uh, it's different, different modes of thinking, man. Right. You're like one minute you're like, you know, skinny dipping in Louisville on acid. Yeah. Like a, like a bevy of adoring fans and friends. And mm -hmm. the next minute you're out there with your book trying to like knock on the door, you know? Yeah. The next minute you're doing like, uh, the Connecticut literary festival had me on as a panel to talk about non-traditional publishing. And I was on there with this woman who's like a poet who, uh, she, she like pretty much invented her own, her own art form of visual poetry and then they like okay so you do a reading and she does this reading and it was amazing and i was just like oh. then they're like all right sam do your reading and i'm reading my shit and i'm just like waiting till the passage is done so i can say a funny thing you know like i can't just be present in the idea that i can't not be funny like whenever i'm talking in front of people i think i need to be funny i need to be entertaining and I don't think that me just reading some stuff that I wrote is a good use of these people's time and attention. So it's just tough, man. I keep saying it's tough because that's that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at least you have, I mean, on the other side of things, like at least you have the, the ability to 
be funny. Like, yeah, there's worse things to be. There's worse things to be, uh, you know, especially nowadays. It seems like I, I envy anybody who has that gift. Like I have, I have a couple friends, uh, who are comedians or who have done comedy. And then I just have some funny friends who just have that, like, especially the one-liner gift, yeah. like the ability to just take language and to just constantly be churning out jokes, mm-hmm. like sort of effortlessly. Yeah. I want to, I want to know what that is. <laughs> like, That's mental illness. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> is it, you think? When you hang out with those people who think in jokes, like, uh, like Dave, Dave, Dave Attell is one of the best comedians ever, but you listen to him talk. And you're like, oh, you can't just think like a normal person. You're constant. The machinations of your mind are set up punchline, and you're constantly working everything you say and all the input that you're receiving into these gears that will then spit out something that is a quip or a joke. You know, like it's fun to hang out with funny people, but people who are on and can't turn it off, you're like, put a dart in this motherfucker's neck. Like we need to p- drop a net on him. Turn it off, it's, brother. We're just having too breakfast. much. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, uh, I've tried it. Like I try to be funny, um, like in writing, like on Twitter or just on the page, whatever, just like trying to, I've tried to write jokes, yeah. you know, it exhausts me. <laughs> uh, like occasionally I get them. I feel like if you like, or let me put it to you this way. Um, I'm no comedian, but I can sometimes be funny. Yeah. Very hit and miss. Uh, but when it works, it happens fast. And if I'm if I'm laboring <laughs> over a line or a tweet or a joke, it almost always sucks. Correct. Oh yeah. That. So that's it. But it's a rare. You know, I don't have like that hot fast output that I guess like the pros do or the people who are really wired up for it. Like it just it's infrequent. And I think like when I sit down to try to do it, that's why I say it's exhausting. It's like ugh. It's like uh. It's like a. Uh, you know, trying to push a boulder up a hill or whatever metaphor you want to pick. It's hard. Well, you might not be the funniest person, but you have a sense of humor. Like, that's good. You know, a lot of people aren't funny and they also don't have a sense of humor. And you've had like four good zingers on this podcast. That's pretty good for two hours, man. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I like, I really revere comedy. I yeah. love comedians. Like, I've talked about that on this show many times. I know. Uh, I think that, uh, I think it's a, like it's such a noble thing to do. I was having a conversation with a friend, like an epistolary conversation recently where we were emailing back and forth. And this person was sort of doubting their, you know, their abilities and like kind of down talking writing, you know, as like a thing to do. And to me, this is a person who's extremely talented. Uh, and I bristle at, the ways in which this culture can make people who don't have more traditional interests or inclinations feel like they are somehow less than for pursuing what they want to pursue or doing what they want to do. Uh, It might make them poor. It might make them peripheral. It might make them, you know, uh, some kind of outcast, but I refuse to accept the notion that there is not nobility in it. Like that's where I, I just, you know, my hackles go up. Uh, I, I think it's a dangerous bullshit. It's bad for, it's bad for the culture. It's bad for people, you know, and it's, it's a sign of how society is sick. Uh, you know, that the only 
the, the only like acceptable metrics for success, um, are, you know, leave out so much of uh, what I love and care about. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like, it's great that your wife is a doctor. That's a perfect example. Like hats off to anybody in a care, in a care profession, you know, I marvel at people who can do brain surgery or I don't know what kind of doctor she is, but, um, it's not to denigrate people who have like a more linear career path and a more traditional career path. Um, but that is an example of a profession where like, if, as long as you can get through those hoops and go to medical school and get the MD, then the wider culture goes, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like a doctor, you you're know valuable. what I'm saying? It's, you're officially valuable. You're officially valuable. And for everybody else, you know, or for people like in comedy or in literature, <laughs> it's hard, man. You know, it's hard to have a sense of value in the absence of that applause, you know, whether it comes in the form of an audience, you know, at a club or in a theater or people at a book reading or, uh, you know, a million Twitter followers or whatever it is. And I hate to see anybody who is making an earnest effort and who has some real talent in one of these fields denigrating themselves too much or denigrating the field itself. Oh yeah. That's the worst. Yeah. When, you know, when they start to get down on writing or they start to get down on comedy, it's like, damn dude, like, no, these things are holy. <laughs> I refuse to accept that they're not, you know? Um, and there's also a playbook for becoming a doctor. Like these pursuits that you're talking about, there's no roadmap to how you become validated in those pursuits you know like my wife had to work really hard for eight years and then on the other end of that that marathon the finish line is being a doctor and in comedy or writing or any artistic uh occupation you just kind of try and copy what people have done before you when in reality everyone's uh ascent is completely unique to their own career. So it's just like, you never know if you're doing it correctly in these pursuits, which I think is why it's easier to get down on yourself because you're comparing yourself to other people and you don't know what their struggle was and they don't know what your struggle was. So why are you, why are you playing that comparison game? It's just such a waste of time. Well, yeah. And it makes me think too, that like ultimately everybody's got to do it their own way. Right. I mean, they literally have to, literally have to, but that's what you're doing. And I think this would be my read on it. Like, like new to new to your literary work, um, new to you as a person. But like, I have to believe that this book is a going to be a, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, especially be look, you'll look back on it. as like, that was the, that was the break. Like this broke me through in a new way, not only as a, a writer, but also as a comedian. Um, I think it's going to, make you more of a draw on the road. Um, I think it obviously is winning you deeper respect from your peers because you've given language to their experience. Um, but it's so unique. And like you say, you can't even instruct anybody else on what to do. I mean, it's just, this is just the thing you did. This was your specific way of doing it. And anybody who's going to succeed has got to find their specific way. Hopefully they do, yeah. you know, but, um, not everybody does. This is the culmination of a bunch of different things coming together. It's just a braid, you know, so I appreciate that, man. And also, it's funny if you people have been coming out more to see me on the road after reading this book. 
and like you know it's it's a very good book i'm very proud of it and uh it's literary and then they see my act <laughs> which is so slap happy and silly that there's just this like dissonance between the person they're expecting me to be on stage and then when they see me in the room and i'm just like hey i know you're having fun but if this isn't what you expected i also didn't expect anyone to give a shit about my book so like, <laughs> right it's weird for both of us <laughs> well but i you know that's interesting cuz i think you know one of the weird things about publishing a book that people read or you know I, to some extent doing a podcast cuz it's uh it's intimate you know and it's personal is that when you meet people who like read your book or listen to your show or whatever they know a hell of a lot more about you than you know about them for sure and so uh, I can imagine, and the other thing too, you know, you talk about your book being literary, which it is, but I think possibly the most important, important litmus test that I would personally have for any work of art is that it changes my temperature. That's the way I always put it. Like it's emotionally affecting. Um, it's a very emotionally affecting book and, and not in a slap happy way necessarily. Like it is funny at times, but like, man, it really like works on your heart. And so I can imagine people having this deep sort of private moment of like spiritual conference with your book and then going to see your show and maybe imagining you to be some approximation of Billy Ray Schaefer. Uh, yeah. Like maybe like a slightly reformed Billy Ray Schaefer since you're still sentient. <laughs> you know, but like, <laughs> But like I can see how that confusion would be there, and then also that that like gulf between, you know, their deeper knowledge of your soul versus your like essentially like zero knowledge of them, unless you've met them before. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's got to be an interesting dynamic, like at post show, like when you're shaking hands or you're at the bar, sort of like mingling or whatever. People must come at you differently than they used to. They very much do, man, and it's uh. It's just another thing that fills me with gratitude when people come up to me and they're like, hey, man, I liked your book a lot. Um, have you ever read Falconer? And you're like, yeah, I love Falconer. It's a great book. And they're like, oh, cool. Man, I've never met anyone else that's ever read these books I like. So, you know, when they want to come up and uh, discuss Larry Brown with me because they heard me mention Larry Brown on a podcast, like those conversations are so rewarding. And I'm just... Uh, I never thought I'd be in a position where people who come to my comedy shows would want to discuss these books that I like. And it's just, it's been really fucking cool, man. Wow. You know, like now it's making me go back to the whole notion of like, uh, like the boutiquing, <laughs> like the, the niching or whatever of, uh, art and how by writing this book and putting it out into the world, you've sort of created a way to like winnow down uh, to your tribe, you know, with like great specificity, you know what I'm saying? Like you yeah. should get those people's email addresses. Like those are your fans, man. <laughs> you know, those are your people. And now, you know, and like, oh, yeah. this book has, has become a signifier for that. Like if somebody reads this book and really loves it or wants to talk about Larry Brown with you, like don't lose that person. <laughs> I don't. And you know, if you buy, if you buy the book from samtalent.com, I have your email. And, uh, you know, when I'm going to Houston, I email everyone who's bought my book in Houston or the recent, you know, the, uh, the area around it. And I'm saying, Hey, I'm going to be in Houston June 5th at this theater. 
come out and then a lot of them will be like oh sick thank you i didn't even know i joined your mailing list and you're like well you didn't i just like <laughs> scraped your data and uh misused my powers but thank you for not being pissed about it and then they'll then they'll respond like cool man have you read a fan's notes and i'm like hell yes i have dude right. let's get into it yeah <laughs> so before i let you go i want to ask you uh, another couple things yeah first of all the inclusion of norm mcdonald as a character in the book yeah, uh, I would be remiss if I did not talk with you about this because, you know, it's a big choice. Um, I think it's a savvy choice. I loved that section of the book. It was fun to imagine like an actual working comedian that I know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and having your fictional character interact with him um, and like have a, a past history and all that kind of stuff. I guess the most elemental question about it is like, why Norm? I think Norm's the best comedian ever i've listened to norm talk for hundreds of hours on youtube uh i read his book and was completely blown away by it and i needed a person who was respected by the industry of comedy that did not respect billy ray anymore and i needed someone that could be a bridge between billy ray when he was the guy who was edited out of beverly hills cop 2 for being too funny <laughs> to the guy now who i keep saying in the book like as the author i keep saying like this guy is good at stand up this guy is respected by comedians like just because he's working these shit gigs in uh vfw halls doesn't mean that he once didn't have it so having uh Norm be the hinge between old Billy Ray and new Billy Ray just fit perfectly. And also I needed a comic that I could write in their voice. And like I said, I've listened to Norm talk so much that I was able to kind of just adopt the way he speaks and kind of some of the, maybe their projections onto the way that I think that he would feel about certain situations. But uh, I don't know, like I said, I could be a conduit for Norm. I could let him, I could speak for him without thinking I was doing him an injustice. Uh, Anthony Jeselnik said the only thing he didn't like about the book was Norm being the like uh, wizened sage character, and I was like, I don't think he's a wizened sage. I just think that he's like someone who is kind to Billy Ray when no one's really kind to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the sense I got. I just got a sense that they were peers. Yeah. Uh, and by the who way, they're catching up after a long time. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, but I was going to say the only thing I, I would add is that in the book it's very obvious that Billy Ray is bottoming out and I gotta, I gotta believe that if you're a comedian who's been on the road as long as Norm has and has done it for as long as he has, you've seen plenty of people bottom out. Like he recognized, yeah. he recognized the situation. Like you'd have to be a pretty hard hearted human being <laughs> to like stomp on a dude when he's that fucked up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Um, I don't yeah, know if someone's hanging on the cliff, you don't step on their fingertips. Exactly. Hopefully. Yeah, that was the sense that I got is that he knew like it wasn't said explicitly in the book, but I always had the sense in that section of the book that Norm understood where Billy Ray was and was being human to him. And it was poignant because I also got the sense that, you know, Norm knew, you know, I don't know if this guy's going to make it. You know what I'm saying? Like there was that yeah. sense. There was kind of like a mortal sense to it that uh, moved me, you know, and uh move me about Billy Ray, but also move me about the Norm character. Like I, I would, I would be shocked if he read it and wasn't, uh, okay with his portrayal, you know, 
It's a little yeah. bit of a, it's a little bit of a risk. You know, you got to feel. A little, I'm sure you got to feel, especially since you uh, love his work so much. It's got to be like, oh shit! I hope he likes it. <laughs> oh, totally. I was terrified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was so uh, scared that he might read it and be like, I don't sound like this. What's this? <laughs> I don't. I don't talk like that. <laughs> But there is that paternalism in old comedians. Like if I'm working at the rock club in town and <clears throat> excuse me, there's a uh, an older comic that I've worked with is at the comedy club. I will send them a text message and be like, hey, I'm in town. And typically they'll be like, cool, why don't you come over and either do a guest set on my show or let me introduce you to the booker or can I buy you dinner afterward or what are you doing for breakfast? And then they'll buy breakfast because they're in a better position. The same way that when I'm on the road and I have the feature with me, they're never paying for any of their meals. Like if they're opening for me, I'm going to make sure that they're eating and take care of their drinks. It's just kind of like, I don't know. That's that's just how it's done, I think. Well, that's great. That's how it should be done. Yeah. Uh, like I always, I had this theory too. Like I feel like the richest person at any dinner table should always pick up the tab. Oh yeah, I for guess sure. It, I guess it gets a little problematic if there's like twelve people at the table or something. But like, even there, it's like whoever's the if there's twelve people, that's going to be a you know probably some variety of uh, levels of affluence. Like whoever's leading the pack, you know, you take the hit, and then eventually you'll be at a table. Like I don't know how that would work out. I guess some people would get screwed repeatedly, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, probably quit going to dinner with people yeah, right. <laughs> if it's hurting them that bad. Right, right. I, I agree with you completely, unless it's your parents. Uh, parents should always pay for money, even if you're making – they should always pay for dinner, if, even if you're making more money than them. Right. Because <laughs> my parents are both retired now, and the book has been – you know, it's been a windfall, me selling all these copies out of my house. And now when we ever go to dinner, my mom will be like, Sam, uh, why, don't you, why don't you grab this? You know, I've been, I've been paying for your meals for 34 years. You're doing all right. You're always telling us how good you're doing. Why don't you pick this up? My dad would be like, no, no, no. <laughs> um, movie rights. Like the other thing I kept thinking is that there, this is a very cinematic book. Like it's like story structure wise, you know, obviously like a really, um, I don't know. I, I can see this character working on the screen. Uh, like who bought the movie rights first of all uh um the vogel brothers out of london who uh did you ever read the true history of the kelly gang no it was a novel about the pretty much the the jesse james of australia um and it was really really good novel written in uh like australian pigeon english it's really postmodern and cool and they made that into a film it was just nominated for best picture at the Australian Oscars and they reached out to me and I was initially going to sell it to, I don't know if I should say, uh, Apatow. <laughs> no, I mean, but I was always like, why doesn't Apatow? I mean, Marin initially was like, maybe I'll option it. And, uh, <clears throat> the band tool wanted to buy the film rights. Interesting. Yeah, because they're like Stanhope adjacent in the desert. And then uh, they kind of put like an arbitrary. Anyway, the Vogel brothers bought it and they're they're cool dudes and I'm glad they got their hands on it. Do you think it's going to get made? Is it still TBD? I certainly hope so. I just finalized the deal like April 15th. Okay. So, yeah, uh, they have a proven track record of making movies happen. So, yeah, I hope it happens. Are you going to write the script? No, they were kind of adamant on the fact that they wanted to spend a bunch of money on hiring the best screenwriter they could get their hands on to write the screenplay, 
which I was like, well, I'm going to lose out on money that way. But also I kind of want to be done with this book, you know, like I don't want to sit back down with this character and trying to like reform it into a different medium. I'm on the second book now and I'm very much intent on finishing that. Um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with someone else writing it. And also, dude, I made the. I, I'm making money if it gets made. So if it's in a fucking abomination and an abortion on the screen, still the book that I wrote was made into a movie, and I think that's a victory. Yeah, you know, no doubt. And it doesn't diminish the book. Do you know what I'm saying? Like no, they're, they're two separate things. Like they really are their own beasts. And I also totally get like wanting to be done. You know, like some people they love to adapt their own stuff or they take the you know they take the job. But uh, there's something nice as well about just being like hands off. Like take it go make it, you know, make it your yeah. own and see what you can do with it. And I'm curious to know if like, as you're writing it, you have to be imagining who would play Billy Ray. Do you have any like dream scenarios? Dream casting John C. Riley. I think, uh, he'd be the best. I mean, he's a big burly man who can grow mutton chops. He's got a big broad face. He has chops doing, you know, comedy live on stage for crowds as, uh, the Brule character. And he's very funny. He can be very serious uh, he'd be my dream casting. Um, I know Ron White really was like, maybe this is my star turn. And I was like, all right, Ron, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the people, I mean, the Vogel brothers initially, they were like, what about Michael Keaton? Because Michael Keaton did stand up and Norm MacDonald said he was the best stand up he ever saw live. So that might make it easier to get Norm involved. Um but also Keaton's not like a big burly man, so I don't know. Yeah. I gotta think on it some more. I I was noodling around like trying to imagine who it would be. I for some reason I saw Benicio del Toro, but that's not quite right, unless he could really inhabit like the there's something like distinctly southern. Yeah. You know? John Carroll Lynch, uh he could probably pull it off. But I just think that you need to have someone who's done stand up. Because yeah. you can't really fake being a comedian you know yeah that's a good point i mean uh, yeah i mean i take your point i should say because uh what is it the the tom hanks movie is the only movie i can think of where somebody is that punchline yeah where they all have lockers in the comedy club <laughs> that's not a thing that's all i really remember about that movie no dude yeah we're not all changing back there and showering and snapping towels <laughs> uh and okay and so uh running the light did I miss this in the book? Am I misremembering? Like, what does running the light mean? Should I know this? No, it's an it's a real inside baseball comedy term. So when you're, let's say you're supposed to do an hour, the host will be like, hey, when do you want the light? Oh, right. And you'll say, I want the light at 50 minutes. So that way you know you have 10 minutes left. And if you're running the light, it means you're going past your time. You're doing more time than you were supposed to. Got it, got it, got it. So... I feel like this guy's running the light on uh, on a lot of different aspects of his life. And it's probably the most uh, purposefully up my own ass artistic decision I made with this book was calling it running the light. And I'm so glad I did because I, I think it I fucking nailed it with the title, man. <laughs> Every comic's like, hell yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's a good title. I mean, I didn't even Thanks, know man. what it, I didn't even know what it meant. And I liked it. But I was like, I know it had to be something to do with, I, you know, if I'd have thought about it more, I probably could have pieced it together. But. Uh, yeah, it's like vaguely poetic enough that even if you don't know what it means, you're like, right on, brother. And then if you're a comic, you know exactly what it means, and it's apt. Was there anything – can I ask – this is a, like a really inside baseball question, but we're at the yeah. at the end of the of the talk, and 
just found myself wondering this, but like the, without giving too much away, the scene where he bathes in the Cherry Creek. Yeah. Like that felt baptismal to me. That felt. Yeah, I know. Was that, <laughs> you know, like that? I, I thought it was actually a good choice. I was like, oh, like as I was getting to that section of the book, I was like, oh my God, like he's back, he's getting baptized now. <laughs> like, was Thanks, that- man. I don't, so like I said, when I wrote this book, I didn't realize that that's how it would read, but also in that chapter, he walks through that zombie crawl. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like right? I felt like there was some nice apt like symbolism. Thanks, man. That lent, but it also like lent me, lent it an air of like foreboding. It was like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like good choices, but I did feel like there was some sort of like biblical allusion to that section of the book, even if it was subconscious. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I wish I could say that like I had it all planned out and I'm that smart, but it also sounds like I'm trying to avoid sounding highfalutin, but no, it, it does read baptismal. And also in that the beginning of that chapter, I've had a lot of people, without giving me too much away, like who were like, So he died at like that's he he died, right? And then the trash picker is like his angel, and then he kind of walks through hell and then he gets washed in the water. Like he's dead, correct? <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? That's a great interpretation, and you're a lot smarter than me, but pretty sure he's still alive but it's yours now i mean i did my thing you interpret it however you want maybe he's dead damn, good call damn i didn't even think yeah. of that but i mean hey because he meets that little like demon imp you know who's wearing the trench coat and then they like do drugs and everything goes awry and it's like well yeah maybe he was uh killed and then he walks through hell and he ascends to heaven i don't know sure it makes me sound smarter sure well, dude you were in some kind of trance when you wrote this in a year you know like who knows what was happening in your brain when this uh, flew out of you. I'd love to just say, yes, I am. I'm, I'm gifted, but no, I can't. I can't claim any kind of like foresight on that. <laughs> uh, what's the new book? Uh, the new book is, uh, it's pretty much about me if I never left my small town. Just uh, the guy that I probably would have been if I never escaped uh, Elizabeth, Colorado. And it's coming along. I had about a third of it done before I started on this book and just plugging away, man, trying to get that first draft done. Yeah. It's kind of intimidating because everyone loved this book so much. So now I'm like, well, I'm sure this next one will be fucking panned. <laughs> it's well, brutal. It, who knows? You know, like this is the thing like you, uh, I think one of the harder things to do in art and writing is like to follow a hit. This book, whether you know it or not, is a hit. 14,000 copies makes it a hit in literary fiction. Um, Thank you, Brad. Doubly so since you're doing it yourself, you know, like without any support from a corporate entity or whatever. Um, and again, if a corporate entity does want to come scoop me up, baby's right here. <laughs> it's going to, it's, dude, it's going to happen. Like, wait, I guarantee it. Like, somebody's going to get wise, you know. Um, people are moved by numbers, right? And, uh, the point I was going to make, though, is that sometimes, like, it's uh, it's better just to tune it out. I think if somebody has like a big blockbuster novel, especially like a liter a work of literary fiction, it's so unlikely, like statistically speaking. Um, and like we were talking about earlier, like there's so many books that are like living out on the margins that are so fucking good, you know? Like you're yeah. like, how can this not be like on everybody's coffee table, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that it can sometimes create a scenario where you're you know feeling like you need to live up or like recreate that magic somehow and you can't fall into that trap like maybe i'm 
paying too much credence to the gods, but like, it really does feel mystical to me. Like when somebody catches a wave, like, uh, just because it's be, it's way beyond my understanding, like at the level of creation, but also at the level of, uh, response, you know, there's some shit working that goes beyond like cause and effect, or at least cause and effect that I can understand. Yeah. No, I agree with you. But I mean, that's the thing is you read, I just, you, you watch that Hemingway documentary by Ken Burns. Yeah. 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 So it's like, there's all these great books that we remember of Hemingway. And then I forgot like those five other shit books that everyone hated. Right. So it's right. like, I'm glad to know that even Hemingway kept throwing spaghetti at the wall and not all of it stuck. Um, Cause you know, if you could have one book that is good, like if this is the book that people like of mine and I'm able to have a position where I pump out more novels after this and maybe they're not as good or as well respected, like at least a, I'm still writing and I'm doing the work and I'm still creating and B it's just cool that, this uh, struck such a nerve with so many people and that's that's a win a lot of people don't get this to happen to them and i'm I keep saying grateful man but that's all i am i'm just grateful well it's good to meet you uh and congrats you know i, I really loved it and uh i think there's going to be more uh, good stuff in store for you with this book that would be my prediction and uh, uh you know good luck with the next one and and keep in touch let me know you know how things shake out um i'd love to know I will, Brad. And yeah, I just want to say this was an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. All right, you guys, there you go. That's Sam Talent. His new novel is called Running the Light. It's available now on Too Big to Fail Press. You can track Sam down on the internet and you can buy a copy of his book over at samtalent.com. That's talent with two L's. You can find him on social media. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. His handle on Twitter is at Talent Sam. Once again, the novel is called Running the Light. Go get it. Read it. Trust me. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show, more than 700 and counting, all of it is available to you free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you like the program, if you get something from it and you want to support it, tip your server you can do that over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod there are different tiers different levels of support for as little as a dollar a month you can uh, support the show and at higher levels you can get stuff get a t-shirt a coffee mug a sticker a tote bag a book club subscription i'll write you a postcard i'll wish you happy birthday patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you have something to say if you want to tell me a story or voice your concerns the email address for the show is letters at other once again don't forget this show has its own official app the other people with brad listy app it's a great way to listen it's free go get the app also, please remember that the Other People podcast has a YouTube channel. It has a YouTube presence. Every single episode of this show is available on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, track the show down on YouTube. Search for it by name. Be sure to spell it Other PPL. Next week on the program, my pal Melissa Phoebos is back for another round. She has a book uh, called Girlhood out right now on Bloomsbury, I believe. Let me make sure about that. Shit, now I can't find the book. But yeah, I think it's on Bloomsbury. 
And uh, I had a great time talking with Melissa. So stay tuned for that next week. All right?